Our message this morning from 1 Peter is called Our Protected Living Hope and Unfading Inheritance. Our Protected Living Hope and Our Unfading Inheritance. It's based on 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And what we're going to see in these wonderful verses under the banner of Refiner's Fire, living in victory while facing opposition, is that we have a tremendous salvation, a marvelously secure salvation. And we're going to see just how marvelous and just how secure our salvation is in Christ in these verses. But before we look to these verses, I want to very quickly review what we saw in the first two verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. We looked at those last Sunday. I hope that you'll remember that these verses teach us that as Christians, we are aliens who have been sown, chosen, and saved, so we are obedient, and we have all the grace and peace that we need. That's what verses 1 and 2 taught us. When I think of that truth, I think it's embodied in a friend of my wife's and mine. I'll call her F, her initial. In Pennsylvania, we had a friend named F. F grew up in a religious, but in an abusive home. Yeah, those things can go together sometimes. They would have considered themselves to be Christians, but they were only religious and not born again. Partly to escape her abusive home, F married a hard and a demanding man. They were both not Christians. One day, F visited and then returned again and again to a Bible-believing and a gospel-preaching church. She liked the church, although her husband would not attend with her, and she kept going to the church, and then, with time, God marvelously saved F. With time, F came to see that the Lord had planted her in her troubled marriage and home to be light and love. She learned that God had selected her for salvation before he created anyone in the human race. And F began to see that her wounds of her former abusive life, she saw those wounds begin to gradually melt away into the joys of her newly discovered faith in her new Savior, Jesus Christ. All of these changes made F more and more desirous of obeying God and respecting her difficult husband and by doing the things which her Lord called her to do in his word. Personal Bible study for F became the regular thing. Serious Bible study. She'd rise very early in the mornings to meet with the Lord in his word. She took it very seriously. Of course, as F gave this kind of time in prayer to the studying of the Bible, she drew upon more and more and more and more grace and help and peace for her in her marriage and as a mother. So far, F's husband, to my knowledge, is not yet saved. But even before we left Pennsylvania, we could see God drawing him closer to Christ. He was less resistant, less cold, and less critical of the church and of the Savior. We continue to pray that as F is a quiet and gentle spirit in her home with her unsaved husband, that he will come to know the Lord Jesus even as his wife has and be radically transformed. This person, this woman, this sister that I'm calling F, I believe is a real example of, to us of what verses 1 and 2 teach all of us. Namely, as Christians, we are aliens who have been sown and chosen and saved. So we are obedient and we have all the grace and peace 
that we need. Now it's time to move from verses 1 and 2 to verses 3 through 5, which are our focus this morning. And verses 3 through 5 can be broken down into three parts, and they are these. Part 1 is our living hope. That's verse 3. Part 2 is our unfading inheritance. That's verse 4. And part 3 is our protecting God. That is verse 5. To say them again, part 1, our living hope, verse 3. Part 2, our unfading inheritance, verse 4. And part 3, our protecting God, verse 5. I want to take these one at a time with some detail. And so number one, our living hope. You do know you have a living hope, I trust. You do if you're saved. A living hope, verse 3, 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, watch, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you're saved, you have a living hope. In the first place, it's living because we have a living word of God. The Bible is not dead. The Bible is not ancient. The Bible is not outdated. The Bible instead is living. In verse 23 of 1 Peter 1, if you flip the page to 23, you read this. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, watch, the living and abiding word of God. The Bible you hold in your hands, the Bible that's on your lap perhaps at this moment, is a living and abiding word of God of God. And because it is, we have a living hope that's based in the center of the Bible, in the living Christ, and it's communicated to us by a living word of God. And so our hope is living because we have a living word of God in the first place, but our hope is also living because we have a living Savior. Jesus didn't stay dead. In Revelation 1, 17 and 18, the risen Christ says to the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos, as the book of Revelation is being given by the Spirit of God, Jesus said, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man, and he laid his right hand upon me. And this is what Jesus said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus said to a worshipful John, I was dead, but no longer. I'm a living Lord. I'm alive from the dead, and I'm alive forevermore. And because your Savior and my Savior, who is the head of this church, is a living Christ, we have a living hope. We have a living word of God, and we have a living Savior. You know, sometimes when I'm reading God's word, the Bible, which is a living book, I have a very real sense that it's not so much that I'm just reading the Bible, but that the Bible is reading me. Ever had that feeling? You're reading God's book, and you realize God's book is also reading you, telling you the way you should go, telling you how you should repent, giving you courage for the, the scary parts of life, giving you wisdom where you lack wisdom. The Word of God reads us as much as we read it because the Word of God is a living word about a living Savior. And so we have a living Savior. And so we love a good shepherd and not a gold statue. And so we trust a risen Christ and not a rigid church. And so we want a person, 
not a philosophy. And so to review our first point, we have our living hope, that point A under that is our hope is living because we have a living word of God and a living Savior. The second point under our living hope, point B, is our hope is life-giving. Our hope is life-giving because, number one, we are in union with our Savior. We are in union with our Savior. In Romans 6, Verses 4 and 5, we read the following. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. You know, if I took a three-by-five card and I placed it into my Bible, and I went to the shipping office in Nassau, and I got it all packaged up in a FedEx box, and I addressed the package to my friend in Seattle, Washington. And then I left it with the FedEx people, and FedEx carried my Bible from Nassau to Seattle. My three-by-five recipe card would also get to Seattle because it's in the Bible. It has union with the Bible. But guess what? If FedEx messed up, and sometimes they do, we all make mistakes, and if my Bible wound up in Boston instead of Seattle, my three-by-five recipe card would also wind up in Boston because whatever happens to my Bible with FedEx happens to my three-by-five card, which has union with my Bible. Christian, you have union with Christ. You have experienced everything that Jesus has experienced. He was crucified. You have been crucified. The old you has been crucified. He was buried. The old you has been buried with Christ. He has been resurrected to newness of life, and you have been resurrected in Christ to newness of life. And the life you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. And that was all pictured in the baptistry. Buried with him through baptism into death. Raised to walk in newness of life. And so we have a hope that is a life-giving hope because we are in union with a living Savior. Secondly, we have a life-giving hope because we are born again in this Holy Spirit. You know, there was a, a religious theological professor in the Jewish seminary in Jerusalem. They were the guys that taught everybody the Old Testament law. But this particular professor at the theological school in Jerusalem heard about a Jesus from Galilee who hadn't gone to any Bible colleges or seminaries, but he was teaching with authority, not like the rest of the faculty at the Jewish seminary that this particular faculty member taught at. And so he, he snuck by night to see this Jesus of Galilee. And he came by night so no one would see him. And he came and he asked Jesus the most fundamental question that could be asked. This theology professor came to Jesus by night and said, how do I get to heaven? Maybe you sit here this morning and you ask the same thing. How do I get to heaven? It's interesting that Jesus picked a metaphor to tell this the theology professor how to get to heaven. He could have picked any, any metaphor at his disposal, but Jesus picked the metaphor of rebirth. 
And Jesus said to Nicodemus, this theology professor, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Are you born again? If you're not born again, you're not a Christian yet. Christians are born again. Jesus said so. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? He's thinking literally. Jesus answered, truly, truly. When Jesus says truly, truly, he's saying, listen up. He's saying, don't miss this. It's important. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, I take that to mean physical birth. When a pregnant lady's water breaks, she's about to deliver a baby. Jesus is saying, you have to be born physically of water and of the Spirit, capital S. Jesus said to this theology professor, you got to be born twice to get to heaven. you got to be born of water physically through your mother, and you've got to be born of the Holy Spirit secondarily after physical birth. That's how you get to heaven. You have to be born again. That's what Jesus said. And then he said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Holy Spirit is spirit. So we have a hope that is a life-giving hope because we are born again of the Holy Spirit. Now, I've told you many times that both of our children are adopted. We adopted both Joanna and JD as newborn babies in Canada. We told them that at the youngest of ages that they could understand it. We celebrated that way of forming a family, and everything is cool. They know exactly uh, their heritage. No problem. But let's say we raised both of them to know and love Jesus, which we did, and we do. And let's say one of them, hypothetically, One of them departs from the way of the word of God and does their own thing in sinful disobedience. Contrary to what we have taught them as parents, contrary to the Bible, but just chooses to go over here. If that child of ours comes under conviction for that kind of living and is repentant and sorrowful, if that child of ours comes to me and says, Daddy, I haven't been living like an Elliot. Could I become an Elliot again? I would say, you are an Elliot. You were adopted legally to be an Elliot. That's your last name. If you haven't been living the values the Elliot family stands for as found in God's word, the Bible, then come back to God's word, the Bible standard. You don't have to become an Elliot again. There are some in the sound of my voice who have trusted Jesus to be Lord and Savior. You are saved. You are securely saved. But you have veered off of the way of the word of God for various reasons. You don't have to be born again again. You need to come back to Jesus in repentance and sorrow for sin and say, I want to start living like the new person you've made me to be. Not like living like an Elliot You want to tell Jesus, I want to live like a Christian. I carry your name, a little Christ, as a Christian. If that's you, return to your Savior. So we have a living hope. It's living because we have a living word of God and a living Savior. Secondly, secondly, we have a hope that is life-giving because we're in union with a living Savior and we're born again of the Holy Spirit. Now we come to Roman, Roman numeral two in this study. 
Roman numeral two is our unfading inheritance. Roman numeral one, remember, was our living hope. Now we're on to number two, our unfading inheritance. If you're a Christian, if you're born again, you have an unfading inheritance. Let me show you that in verse four. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You have an unfading inheritance if you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. And under this point, point A, we are the king's children. Do you know that you are a child of the king if you are a Christian? You are. You're a child of the king. If you're a Christian, you are the king's child. In Romans 8, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is saying that if you are saved, if you are a born-again Christian, you are a child of God and an heir of God. Fellow heir with Christ. That's an unfading inheritance. But that's not all. You have an unfading inheritance if you are a Christian because you are Jesus Christ's last will and testament. I had a will and testament in Canada, and I don't think it's active or enforceable in the Bahamas, so Beth and I will have to go to a lawyer to get a new will and testament now that we live in the Commonwealth of the Bahamas. But if you don't have a will... You ought to get a will and not leave a mess for your survivors when you die. That's just a little commercial for no particular attorney. (laughs) No particular attorney. You should get a will. Jesus Christ has a will. He says in his high priestly prayer for us who would come after him and believe in him and follow him, he says in John 17, verses 22 to 24, Praying to his father, Jesus prays, and the glory which thou hast given me, watch it, I have given to them. Jesus said, the glory you've given to me, I have bequested to them as my last will and testament that they will get the glory you gave to me, Father. Amazing. An unfading inheritance. And then the other thing is, in verse 4, back to first. Peter 1, verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not pass, fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Not only are you the king's child if you're saved, not only are you Jesus Christ's last will and testament if you are saved, but also you are the king's best secured loved one. Beth and I swim about six, seven days a week for exercise, about a half a mile a day. We enjoy it so much, the beautiful clear waters on Cabbage Beach and the sand bottom. And we see so many interesting things, living and dead in the sea. One of the things we often find are sand dollars. We know that they're dead when they're white. And so my greatest joy is to find a sand dollar on the bottom of the seafloor as I'm snorkeling, and I put it in my little dive bag that's got a mesh bag, and I try to bring it home safely without breaking it. But the smaller a sand dollar gets, the more fragile and thin they are, right? And sometimes I find uh, white sand dollars on the seafloor that are about the size of a quarter, 25-cent piece. They're little. And boy, are they fragile. I've learned that I've broken about five of them, just swimming them from the seafloor up to the surface. 
And forget about it if you put one of those in the side pocket of your swim trunks. They'll break as soon as you start kicking your fins. So what I've learned to do is I take a little case that has a screw-on lid. It looks like a hockey puck. Beth had some makeup in this once, and when she used up all her makeup, she wiped it clean and washed it out, and she saved it for certain purposes. And we use that case, and I have this case empty in my dive mesh bag, and when I find a little sand dollar that's precious to me, the size of a 25-cent piece, I take the lid off that former makeup case, and I submerge it in the water. I get seawater in the case, and I take, very carefully, take that 25-cent coin-sized sand dollar, and I put it in that case in water, and then I tighten the lid on the case, and then I put it in the side of my swim trunk's pocket. And they get home safe. You are far more valuable than a little sand dollar. God has secured you in his salvation so that he can get you home safely. I want my sand dollars to get home safely, God even more wants every saved Christian to get home safely to be with him forever in heaven. And he's going to see to it. The whole salvation package is what God secures for the believer in Christ. And at verse 4, it's so rich. Look at what this salvation is, this protected salvation. First of all, uh, Verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. This means something that cannot be corrupted or be destroyed. I know enough about computers just to be dangerous. I know very little about computers except what I do with them every day. But I'm told I better have an antivirus protection on my computer because there's these things called viruses that want to come into my computer and want to corrupt my files. And so I have antivirus protection I buy each year. God says, don't worry about that with salvation. It's imperishable. It can't be corrupted or destroyed. But that's not all. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled. Your salvation, Christian, is undefiled. That is, it cannot be stained or cheapened. Before I met Beth, when I was a single man, our family, I guess, had more money than we should have had because we shopped carelessly. We went into stores. We didn't look at anything except what we were looking for. We didn't care what the price was. If we had the money, we bought it. That's how I was raised. I'm not proud of that, but that's the way it was. When I married Beth, I had such an improvement. She would take me into a store, and she'd say, see that over there, Rob? That's the uh, men's clearance rack. you really should go over there and see if there's something your size. So I would trundle over there, and man, there was some good stuff over there, really nice stuff. Half price, 66% off, sometimes even more. And I found these wonderful things on the clearance rack that I never knew about before I got married. For 34 years, I've been going to the clearance rack, and so has Beth for the women's stuff. It's wonderful. Highly recommend it. How does stuff get on the clearance rack? Because it's soiled. It got soiled in being unpackaged at the store or being shipped to the store or a customer soiled it when looking at the garment. Somehow it's soiled or it's got a little tear or a run in the fabric. It's not quite perfect, but your salvation is perfect. And God says that your salvation in Christ is undefiled. It cannot be stained. 
it cannot be cheapened. But there's more. Verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Your salvation, Christian, will not fade away. You know, uh, us husbands sometimes need all the encouragement and convenience we can get to do something nice for our wives, right? Amen, men? And at Marathon Mall, on the sides of the street where the traffic lights are, there's always some nice ladies and sometimes children who are selling uh, long-stem roses. And you stop at the red light, and you say, boy, Beth could use a rose, and you roll down the window and say, I'll take one, and they bring the rose over, and so on. Makes it easy. Guess what? The longest I've ever had a rose bought from any place lasts is about a week. You do pretty well if a rose will last a week. Usually it's even less, five days, three days, four days, and then it starts wilting, petals start falling off, because it's a cut rose, it's a cut flower. You can cut it on the angle, you can put aspirin in the water, you can do anything you want, but you just get about three to, three to seven days out of a rose, and then it peters out. Your salvation isn't that way. Your salvation, because of God's goodness and strength, cannot wither. It cannot lose its beauty. But that's not all. Verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Reserved. That means kept and guarded. Like my little sand dollar in my little case, I've kept it and I'm guarding it against breaking. You know, I was in Ohio with the men's retreat last May and I was outside of a Walmart. All the other guys were shopping a little longer in Walmart than I was. So I was standing out there just uh, enjoying some sunshine and waiting for my friends from church who were shopping at Walmart. And this armored truck pulled up to take away the cash proceeds from Walmart's cash registers. And I noticed they were watching me pretty carefully because here was this guy just standing on the sidewalk watching them take the money. And they had big guns, so I just smiled and I went, good day, everything's fine, good day. Here are my hands, good day. And uh, that's an armored truck is hired to keep the cash sales from a business and to guard them against being falling into wrong hands. That's an armored truck. By the way, just as an aside, you see a lot of interesting things on Nassauvian roads here in Nassau, don't you? I saw an armored truck here in Nassau that had broken down. It was on the hook of a tow truck being carried away. That was pretty good, but I think the one I liked even better was the armored truck that I saw the police officer had pulled over for speeding. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good, but be that what is, as it may. It's not just armored trucks that keep safe money and guard money as an illustration of our salvation keeping us safe and guarded, but it's also, say, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation the FDIC of the United States. That was a, an insurance program that the federal government in the United States sponsors that guarantees depositors of U.S. funds in chartered U.S. banks that they won't lose any of their deposits if the bank fails. And so the, FDI, the FDIC brags that no U.S. depositor in a bank has lost a penny since 1933 because of a bank failure. Well, I can, bet, I can better that. Every born-again Christian has been kept and guarded for heaven. No born-again Christian has missed out on heaven, not one. 
But there's more. Not only is our salvation imperishable, undefiled, unfading, reserved, but it's reserved for us in heaven. That means that our salvation, as great and as practical as, and as here and now as our salvation is, it can't strictly be linked, tethered, tied to earth. Our salvation extends beyond the benefits we have on earth to heaven. Verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled that will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Often I've had the assignment of preaching the funeral of a believer who has died from cancer. And often what I like to remind the mourners at that kind of a funeral is there's some things that cancer cannot do. Cancer cannot kill love. Cancer cannot kill memories. Cancer cannot kill legacies. And cancer cannot kill faith. You may be buffeted, bothered, rocked by circumstances as a born-again Christian here on earth, but your salvation includes earth, but it's greater than earth. It includes heaven. And so we review. We have an unfading inheritance, a whole salvation package which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and reserved, and heavenly. Third and last point in these verses, Roman numeral three, our protecting God. Our protecting God. I see that in verse five. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Will you notice that it is a who and not an it whom God protects? God protects a who and not an it. If you link back to verse 3, you'll see that God protects believers. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ from the dead. Believers like you and me are those whom God protects. Believers. God protects. The verb here is a present tense verb. It means continuous action. God protected you in salvation yesterday. He's protecting you in salvation currently. He will protect you in salvation tomorrow if we get it. He is constantly, continuously protecting the saved in our salvation. You know, the U.S. military, I don't ever recall them being in order that all of the military personnel in the United States take an hour off for a lunch break. Nor have I ever heard a command that all of the military personnel of the United States worldwide take a week off for vacation, all of you. Just take a week. The U.S. military is an illustration of vigilance, constancy, always being on the job. God, who has saved us in Christ, who protects us in Christ, never takes an hour off protecting your salvation, never takes a week off protecting your salvation, never takes a month off or a year off protecting your salvation. And how does he do it? How does God 
protect us continuously in our salvation. Well, it ought to encourage you to know that in the first place, God the Father wills that Jesus Christ would advocate for us. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Think of it. If you know Christ as your Savior and you mess up as I'm prone to do and as all of you are prone to do, and the accuser who is Satan, the accuser of the brethren, goes to the Father and says, see Elliot? See Elliot there in Nassau? Did you just see what he thought? Did you just see what he said? Jesus says, yeah, Father, that was sin, but I paid for it. I paid for Elliot's sins, all of them, past, present, and future. And I prayed for that sinful thought he had. And I paid for that sinful word that he said, and he is mine. That's how God protects me and my salvation. But there's more. Not only does God the Father will that Jesus Christ be our advocate, but God the Father wills that Jesus Christ would intercede for us in prayer. Can you think of that? That your Savior... From the right hand of God the Father in heaven, awaiting his return to earth, he's praying for you? He is. Romans 8, 33 to 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. What a precious thought. That your Savior folds his nail-scarred hands and prays for you when you're tempted, when you've messed up, when you need help, when you need direction, when you need encouragement. Jesus folds his nail-scarred hands and prays for you. He knows you. God protects us in our salvation. First, Jesus Christ is our advocate. Second, Jesus Christ is our intercessor in prayer. And third, God the Holy Spirit also intercedes for us in prayer. The same chapter, Romans 8, 26 and 27. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So on the one hand, we have a risen Savior who prays for us when we need prayer. And on the other hand, we have a Holy Spirit of God also praying for us when we need prayer. Amazing. Comforting. Securing. Protecting. Marvelous. But that's not all. How are we protected constantly by God? Jesus Christ advocates for us. Jesus Christ prays for us. The Holy Spirit prays for us. And fourth, the Holy Spirit seals us. The Holy Spirit seals us. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13, in him... You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. I want you to picture it this way, that when you were saved, converted, redeemed, trusted Jesus alone to be your savior, repented of sin, and trusted Christ to be your savior, you were in a mailing envelope. God, the Father, puts you into a mailing envelope, 
and he addressed the envelope to himself in heaven. So he puts Rob Elliott in this mailing envelope, addresses a self-addressed envelope, says, from God the Father to God the Father in heaven. And then he seals the envelope by the Holy Spirit. He seals the envelope so that no one can get into the envelope except the addressee, who is God the Father in heaven. He also seals the envelope so I can't get out of the envelope if I'm foolish enough to want to. And you know what a registered mail is. If you really have to get a piece of mail to the person, you have to be assured that that person and no other person gets that piece of mail. And you need to know that they got the piece of mail and what date they got the piece of mail. You pay the extra money and you send it registered mail. And it sits at the post office and the post office notifies the recipient, the addressee of the letter and says, you've got a letter at the post office. So you go down to the post office and they ask you to show photo ID to prove who you are, that you are the addressee on that letter. And then you get the letter and then you get to open the letter. God placed you, if you're saved, at the moment of your conversion, God placed you in a mailing envelope that he addressed to himself. And he sealed you in that package of salvation, that envelope with the Holy Spirit. You're sealed. You're secure. You can't get out of that envelope if you wanted to, and no one can molest that envelope and get you out of that envelope if they wanted to. Amazing. I've done a lot of visiting in hospitals as a pastor over 30 years. Got to visit someone in the hospital yesterday at PMH. But I remember a very unusual sight I saw in one hospital when I was visiting in Canada. I saw armed police officers guarding the ICU, the intensive care units, uh, sliding doors. <laughs> they had guns. And so being a little nosy and pulling my pastor card, I said, excuse me, officer, may I ask why you're doing this? Why are you here? Oh, yes. There is a criminal who was almost mortally wounded in a shootout with us last night who's under arrest, and we're stationed here at the hospital to make sure nobody gets in to kill him and to make sure he doesn't get out because he's under arrest. So here are these police officers with guns outside the ICU sliding doors. They're guarding the criminal from any of his bad guys killing him so they won't get squealed upon, and they're guarding that he won't check himself out of the hospital if he starts feeling better. You know, in your salvation, you have the opposite to that. In your wonderful status that you have as a Christian, with God saving and amazing grace, giving you a protected and a living hope and an unfaded inheritance in Christ, you are not under arrest. You've never been more free than when you trusted Jesus to be your Savior. The truth shall set you free, Jesus said. You're not under arrest. And nor have you been wounded. Jesus was wounded for you on the cross in your place, but you are guarded. As a Christian, you are guarded. In your salvation, you are guarded. And Satan can never eternally kill you. You're guarded. And Satan cannot put you into eternal bondage that he knows awaits him. You're guarded. 
I hope you're encouraged. I am. That as Christians, we have a living hope. We have an unfading inheritance. And we have a protecting God. With Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, may we say from our hearts, Rejoice, the Lord is king. Your Lord and king adore. Rejoice, give thanks, and sing and triumph evermore. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice. Again I say, rejoice. Rejoice in glorious hope. Our Lord the judge shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice. Rejoice again, I say, rejoice.